Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. As most of you know who received an email today, uh, Thelma went to be with the Lord late last night. We've been praying for her, and, and her departure had nothing to do with why she was in the hospital. It was clearly... God's timing, God has our days numbered, and time, the manner, and place of our death is clearly taken care of by him, and it was uh, as much as we've been praying for her, and as much as uh, they've been going back and forth with doctors, it was uh, just a time for the Lord to take her home, and uh, she went home pretty quickly and had no uh, recognition of that. She apparently had a seizure or a stroke and, uh, late last night, so while that is certainly a surprise to all of us. It's not a surprise to the Lord. Her uh, memorial service is going to be this Friday afternoon. There, there will be a, a viewing at uh, here from 11 to 1, and then the service will be at 1 o'clock, and that will be followed by internment at Forest Park Lawndale, which is a long way from here. But uh, So that will be take up a lot of the afternoon. Well, before we get started in our study this evening, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Lord, we are so grateful that we can relax in your power and your provision and in your plan, that your plan has taken into account of everything. Your plan has provided for us all that we need to know and that it is your power that sustains the universe, and it is your power that we trust in because we know that you are always faithful. And even when things happen in this life that are of such great magnitude that they shock and surprise us and leave us just stopped in our tracks, we know that you are in control. And even though we are surprised and and, uh, disappointed and we grieve and mourn the death of our friend Thelma, we know that Uh, That timing was perfect, and she was adequately and graciously taken care of. Father, we pray that this uh, memorial service on Friday will honor and glorify you, and those who need to hear the gospel will be here, and that the gospel will be made clear to them by the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we continue our study on the subject of death, preparation, dying grace and grieving. We pray that you'd help us to think objectively about these things and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to each of us the things we need to do in terms of application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
as we've been going through our our study on Jacob and the dying, the death and the dying of Jacob at the end of Genesis chapter 49, beginning of Genesis chapter 50, we see that scene where he has prepared himself, he has prepared his sons, he has uh, gone through a process of bestowing the blessing upon uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, the grandsons, who are the sons of Joseph, and then in the greater part of Genesis 49, we've gone through uh, the blessing upon the other sons. And as you come to the end of chapter 49, as we've come through our study, we've seen how he has prepared them for the fact that he is going to be taken to be with his fathers, gathered to be with his fathers. And so we're pausing because at the beginning of Genesis 50, verse 1, we see this very touching, very deeply moving, intense scene of Joseph expressing his grief and his mourning for Joseph. So it's time to pause and look at this whole doctrine of death in the Scriptures. And last time we talked about the underlying doctrine, which is the faith rest drill, trusting in God, mixing our faith with God's promises, being able to think through the issues in relation to his His character, uh, thinking through the rationales and the various passages that explain where these promises are given, and then having firm doctrinal conclusions that shape our thinking and give stability to uh, our souls, to our emotions, to our thoughts at the time of crisis. Whatever it may be, death is not the only crisis we face. It's not the only time we go through grief and mourning. It's not the only time when we uh, struggle with our emotions and making good decisions in the midst of of uh, emotional instability. Last time I ended with a summary of a doctrine on the preparation for dying. And I had covered four points, and I am added a fifth point that I want to develop some tonight, so we'll just uh, briefly review those first four points. Point number one is if you want to be prepared for your own death, if you want to, be, if you want to have your family prepared for their, their deaths, have your children prepared for their death, then the first question to answer is where are you going to spend eternity and where will they spend eternity? And that, of course, focuses our attention on the gospel, that Christ died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, so that once a person believes, trusts, relies exclusively upon Jesus Christ for their salvation, that instant, that that problem is solved. And we know with confidence that at the point of physical death, the soul is absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord. That's the most important question that we can answer in terms of preparation for death. The second question that we should address as a believer has to do with how we will spend eternity, not where we will spend eternity. And that focuses on what is going to happen at the Bema Seat, at the judgment seat of Christ as a believer. Are we living our life as unto the Lord? Are we living each day, redeeming the time, putting our focus on Bible doctrine as a priority, not just learning it, but applying it, growing, maturing, advancing in our day-to-day growth? Those are the two spiritual issues that we have to address in terms of our spiritual life. Do we have a spiritual life, and how healthy is it would be another way to look at it. Third, we need to take care of earthly business. This involves a number of subcategories, thinking about things such as wills, trust, how are we going to uh, dispose of our earthly assets, 
financial assets, physical assets, once once we're gone, is that all taken care of so that there's minimal difficulty, minimal problem for those uh, we leave behind, taking care of other things such as uh, living wills, such as a power of attorney, uh, medical power of attorney, uh, preparing the mental attitudes of our spouse and our children. And that's very important so that they understand what is going on. I think when I discussed this sometime before, I know that at many times when uh, we have a funeral, it is not uncommon for a pastor to say, well, if so-and-so could come back right now and, and talk to you, then they would be giving you the gospel. Well, we live in an age of technology when people can do that. You could write a letter to be read at your funeral. You could at your memorial service. You could uh, videotape. You could uh, record it on a computer. There are so many different things that people could do, and we just never think of that. In fact, sometimes we might think that's just a little bit odd or macabre. But what a great testimony that could be for someone to actually present the gospel, be a witness to their family at their own memorial service. Uh, they could add some personal touches. Uh, to that message that no pastor could. You could even make it quite humorous, but there's a lot of things that, that could be done at that point. But we need to prepare those, make sure that those around us understand that when the time comes and we're gone, where we are and why we are where we are, and that there should be a time when, even though there will be grief and there will be sorrow, it is not a time when our existence is totally ended. We're not going to put up with silly things like, well, they're alive and they'll continue to live because they're alive in our thoughts. I mean, that's just the kind of superficial, irrational nonsense that unbelievers have to do because they have no basis for hope. And we hear so many trite things that people say just to sort of shore up their own emotions and give themselves a false sense of security when uh, people die because they don't understand what happens what happens in death. A fourth thing that we need to do is to prepare ourselves in relation to the death of those around us. We all have friends that we love. We all have spouses uh, that we love, children, parents, anyone who is close to us. And we, we all fall prey at times to a to a sense of entitlement. And this is just another manifestation of our own arrogance, our own self-absorption, that we are so attached and we become so attached to to people that we just uh, can't imagine not living without them. And yet we don't, we, we know at some level perhaps, and some people actually don't, that, that we're only on this earth for a set number of days. God does not guarantee that people are going to live four score and ten years or twenty years or whatever it may be. God determines that we're going to be on this earth for five years or ten years or fifteen years or twenty-five years, and you're a parent and you have a child, and I know it's very, very difficult I've watched all kinds of reactions to parents who lose their children. In fact, I was talking to a young pastor today talking about some different things in this area, and I ran into this when I was a, uh, just like the first three weeks I was a pastor, I was just talking about how you really see a difference in how believers who are grounded in the truth, grounded in the word, handle death versus either unbelievers are believers who aren't that grounded in the truth. 
and I was teaching Bible class, and it was a small group. It was a Wednesday night, and there was one couple that just had a meltdown. And you just, uh, what did I say? What did I do? I really messed up here. And I didn't realize it, but they had lost a daughter, a 20-year-old daughter, in an automobile accident 10 years before, and it was as fresh and as raw as if it had been the day before. And they they just had not prepared their own souls for that doctrine doctrinally, and I know I knew them. I got to know them much better over the years that I was pastoring there, and they were nice people and they were wonderful people. But you know, people just never think about how to prepare themselves for those those kinds of things. It's too horrible. I'm not going to think about it. A lot of people would rather live in denial. But on the other hand, in the years that I was in seminary. I had two uh, friends of mine that I had grown up with that, who, that, whose parents were very strong believers, solid believers. And both of these boys, where I would known both of them since probably second or third grade, we'd grown up in Sunday school together. We'd grown up going to Camp Penile together. We had done many, many things together. One of them dropped dead of a heart attack while he was out jogging. He was about 23 years old, very athletic, and was dead before he hit the ground. And another one was killed in an automobile accident up in Colorado. And I watched both of their parents, and there was tremendous grief, but there was it wasn't debilitating. They they because of the fortification of their souls with doctrine, that when that happened. It, it it gave them a strength and a stability that even though this other couple were Christians, they and had gone, you know, they they were just like many believers. They just go to church and they 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 think it's somehow because I go to church and I listen to good teaching, or whatever, that somehow that protects me. But they never truly internalize uh, the promises of God and the truth of God's word and think about. Uh, these things. I think a mark of good leadership is being able to think about the negative what ifs and to plan for them. And that's a good thing for parents to do. What if this happens? What if tomorrow I wake up and, and my child has been killed in an automobile accident? How am I going to respond? What am I going to do? What kind of testimony is my response going to have? What promises am I going to have? What promises am I going to think through? What are the doctrinal principles there? Has God given me a guarantee that my child is going to live beyond tomorrow or that my spouse is going to live beyond tomorrow? All of these things. So it's just a part of facing the realities of life and thinking through the, the, the harsh, negative what-ifs and thinking through how we're going to respond and what doctrines apply. And that leads to point number five, that the best and only real preparation for our soul is found in Bible doctrine. It is the truth of God's word that fortifies our soul, and this is personified for us in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 to 33. So I want to take some time just to go through and do a uh, just a sort of a uh, flyby on these uh, 14 verses. A couple of principles to remember if, from this passage. First of all, if you prepare your soul ahead of time with doctrine, you can weather any storm. 
If you prepare yourself ahead of time with doctrine, you can weather any storm. That doesn't mean just getting it into your doctrinal notebook. That doesn't mean just being able to understand it or articulate it. That means that when, when doctrine is, is real to us and moves from simply a stage of going from academic truth as gnosis to uh, app, uh, applicable truth as epinosis to what this passage pictures as wisdom is the idea that we have meditated, we've thought through what that doctrinal principle is. We think about it. We think about how to apply it in a variety of different circumstances. That's what meditation is. It's not, it's not the emptying of your mind, which is the Eastern mystical concept of meditation. Meditation is contemplation. It's thinking about what that principle is, thinking about all the different ways that we could see it apply in our life, all the different circumstances or situations that could come up, and then imagining what would we do in those circumstances and, and, and thinking that through. And that's part of growing and maturing as a believer. It's, it's separating it from just sort of an abstract academic awareness of a principle that the Bible teaches and something that is very real that shapes uh, shapes our soul. The second principle that is clearly stated in these passages is that if you fail to prepare your soul with doctrine ahead of time, then you will be overwhelmed by the storms of life when they come. And it will be too late to try to fortify yourself because once those walls are blown down and once everything is scattered all over the place, it's too late to go back and pick up the pieces. Now, there's recovery. I'm not saying that, but it's long, it's hard, and it's slow. You know, we just have these basic little sayings in English like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's all I'm saying. You, know, you can't shut the barn door after the cow gets out. Just basic things like this. You have to prepare yourself ahead of time. Just to boil it down for those of you who think I get too academic sometimes. Okay, Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open square. She cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. Now, this passage uh, personifies wisdom. There are going to be ten, ten basic principles or observations I'm going to make from this section of Proverbs 1. The starting, uh, the key idea is to understand what wisdom is to begin with. This is just sort of introduction. This isn't one of the principles. The key word for wisdom is the Hebrew word chokmah. And chokmah means wisdom. But see, when you talk to somebody who comes out of a Western European background that's been influenced by uh, Greek philosophy, we think of wisdom as philosophical, abstract, uh, intellectual activity. That's not the Hebrew concept of wisdom. The Hebrew concept of wisdom is skill. Now, one of the first places that this word shows up in the Old Testament is talking about Bezalel and Aholiab are given skill, given wisdom for uh, manufacturing and creating all of the uh, metalwork and all the carpentry and all the jewel settings of everything in the and and all of the uh, uh, clothing for the priests. For the high priest, it, it was to not just make it, but to make it where it was beautiful, attractive, skillful. So the idea of wisdom is something that is very practical. It is taking that 
those principles that we learn that the Word of God teaches and then being able to apply them in a very beautiful, skillful way to the issues of life. Now, so wisdom here is a picture of all that Bible doctrine is, not just sort of an abstract theological concept, but everything that the Word of God teaches in terms of being uh, its application. And it's personified as a person. And it points out that, and it is crying aloud in the street. Now, the first thing we have to understand is within the book of Proverbs, the starting point for wisdom is the fear and the reverence of God. Starting point for wisdom is an IQ. The starting point for wisdom is an education. The starting point for wisdom is your volition towards God. That's the issue. And that's what we see in this, in this passage again and again is the emphasis is not on lack of knowledge or the difficulty to obtain wisdom. See, you, you read something like, like Plato's Republic. It's only the elite that can ever have wisdom. But you read the Bible, and wisdom is available to anybody, regardless of IQ, regardless of education, regardless of culture, anybody who wants it, because it is freely, graciously offered by God. Wisdom is uh, personified here, and the starting point for wisdom is the fear and reverence of God. That's the starting point. And we see this emphasized in a, in a couple of key passages, Job 28.20. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Now this is a fear that goes beyond just reverential respect. This is that kind of a fear that you had when you knew that you did something wrong and you heard your father's voice or your mother's voice and they said your name in that particular tone and you knew that you were in for it and you did not ever want to hear that tone. So rather than doing something which would put your hind end in jeopardy, you didn't do it. That's what the fear of the Lord means. It is truly a, a realization that there is accountability and that, that because I, I understand that accountability and I don't want the divine discipline, I am going to make sure that I uh, keep my uh, priorities correct. That is the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And throughout the book of Proverbs, you have this contrast between the wise and the fool, the wise and the naive. And the naive person we'll get into in a minute is basically the person who rejects doctrine, who thinks that they can, on the basis of their own experience, their own knowledge, their own frame of reference, that they can pretty much do life, make it work without paying a whole lot of attention to God. Uh, the fool is a practical atheist. He may be in church on Sunday morning. He may say he believes in God, but that belief in God doesn't affect how he does business. It doesn't affect how he balances his checkbook. It doesn't affect how he pays his taxes. It doesn't affect how he votes. It doesn't affect how he practices law. It doesn't affect how he runs the family. It doesn't affect how he uh, trains up his children because he's a practical atheist. God doesn't really have anything to do with the day-to-day, uh, the day-to-day running uh, of his life. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. So there's this contrast between evil, which involves anything from arrogance, which can include that which is sin and that which is good, but it's good done out of the arrogance and self-reliance of man's fallen condition. So there's this contrast. So the starting point of, for wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now we come to this, these first two verses. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. The picture here is that uh, wisdom is readily available and offering herself to everyone. So our second point. Second point, before I get into the developing the personification, the second point is that wisdom is developed through the practice of doctrine. Wisdom is developed through the practice of doctrine. You know, we, when I talk about, and I'm not going to get off into all of them, but I talk about the ten, ten problem-solving devices, the ten stress busters, these are ten spiritual skills. Most of you have heard me talk about this before, that a skill is developed by practice. Confession of sin gets us back in fellowship. Walking by the Spirit is something we train ourselves to do. Faith rest drill, uh, claiming promises. Grace orientation involves humility, teachability, and it involves just dealing with people on the basis of, of grace, not on the basis of legalism. Then you have doctrinal orientation, which means that we have to understand reality as it's defined by God in the Scriptures, not how our culture defines it or how we would wish it to be, but that doctrine is that the Word of God is the grid for understanding reality. Then we have a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We know where we're headed. We know there's accountability, and we know that God is training us for that future position. We have personal love for God, which is a motivation, our impersonal love for all mankind, our occupation with Christ, keeping our focus on the author and finisher of our faith, and then sharing the happiness of God, where we have joy that Jesus has bequeathed to us. All of these are those things that keep us stable in the midst of crises. Those are the skills, but it's the practice of them where we, it's where we become skillful. And when we become skillful at it, that's when it becomes wisdom. It moves from being uh, just a basic academic principle. You can sit down at the piano, for those of you who are piano players, and you can learn to play a series of exercises, technique exercise. But it's taking it and playing it like Mozart, where it moves from being simply playing a technique to creating something that is beautiful and artful. Uh, you can apply that to dance. You can apply that for you guys. Just about anybody can learn the basic mechanics of putting a basketball through a hoop. But being able to... Uh, do it like Michael jo Jordan, well, that took a lot of practice, and it developed skill until where it's just, it's just grace in motion to watch an athlete like that perform. But he didn't get there overnight. It took hours and hours and hours of practice. And that's the point, is wisdom is developed through the practice of doctrine and the practice of these ten spiritual skills until it becomes... Uh, just part of our nature. Now, this wisdom is personified, point number three. Wisdom is personified in this passage as crying out to everyone to accept her and make her their own. If you look at the passage, uh, she's going everywhere. Uh, verse 20, 
she raises her voice in the open squares and the public squares. It's not hidden off. It's not something that's restricted to uh, academia. It's not something that is restricted to the elite. It is wisdom is available to all. It's out in the public square. She cries out in the chief concourses. Wisdom is pictured going up and down the street saying, Do you want me? It's free. You don't have to work for it. It's freely offered. Uh, at the openings of the gates in the city, this is where the major major business was done. This is where the judges would sit and resolve conflicts is at the gates of the city. So wisdom is pictured here and personified as being uh, freely available, crying out. Wisdom is exercising the initiative to get you to accept her. The, and and so the problem then is what? It's up to you whether or not you're going to pursue wisdom or not. And that's point four. Wisdom is freely available to all. The only issue is your volition. You can't say, well, I didn't have an opportunity. You can't say, I didn't know. You can't say it wasn't there. And today, no one... I mean, if there was ever a period in time when people didn't have an excuse, it's today. You've got more Bible teaching. You've got a lot of garbage out there, but there's more truth available today to the average believer than ever before in history with the Internet, with MP3s, with DVDs, uh, with, with books that are available, the reprints down through the ages. There is more truth available to the average believer today than any other time in history. And yet the irony is the average Christian is more biblically ignorant and spiritually retarded than at any other time in history, which shows that the average believer today has rejected the invitation of wisdom. So the difference we see in Proverbs is between the wise and the fool is volition. The wise person sets their priorities. They listen to the Word of God. They study it. They think about it. They, they, there are th- many good things and wonderful things and pleasurable things in life that are just set aside so that the Word of God can just saturate the soul so that there will be wisdom. Fifth point we see is that wisdom is everywhere. It's offered everywhere. There's there there's no way that anyone can say I just didn't have access. God has made His wisdom available to everyone. Remember, this is in the period of the Old Testament before you had a completed Old Testament canon. Wisdom is available. God is not uh, hoarding it or hiding it or obfuscating it. Six point. Uh, God has made doctrine available to all, and he takes the initiative to offer it all. Look at verses 22 and 23. Wisdom says, how long, you simple ones, I think some translations say naive ones. It's more than a naivete. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners, notice there's a parallelism here between the simple one and the scorner. The simple one, the naive one, by a sin of negation is by just ignoring, by not accepting the offer. The, 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 the simple one here becomes a scorner because he doesn't make doctrine a high priority in his life. Think about that. 
Positive volition isn't the fact that, hey, I'm a believer and I'm not rejecting the word. Positive volition is either you're all the way up into high gear with the pedal to the metal going forward, or you're negative. That's the difference. Don't try to, you know, make excuses for other people. If they're not listening to the Word of God five or six times a week, they're negative. It's not a priority in their life. That's what this is talking about. You can scorn the Word of God by just, well, I'm just going to sleep in today, or I'm going to play golf today, or I'm just going to show up to church on Sunday. That's all I need. That is, you haven't really understood how important and crucial the Word of God is in your life if you think an hour a week is going to do it. An hour a week, is you're just lying to yourself and playing games with God, and you would do better not to do anything. There are so many people, they, they, they convince themselves that they're positive because they know the right verbiage and they show up once a week. But if the goal of the spiritual life is to learn to think biblically, then that means you have to re-educate yourself from divine, I mean, from human viewpoint paganism, and that doesn't happen in an hour a week. You have to make that a priority or it won't happen. So there's a parallelism here between the simple one and the scorner. For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebukes as wisdom. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. There is that free offer. You've been negative, but you can turn. Just just accept it. There's this, this free offer that's there. Now, the word that's translated as simple ones or naivete is the uh, the Hebrew word uh, piti, it means foolish, or it's translated as foolish or simple-minded. It's someone who's naive concerning the complexities and challenges of life. They're living in denial that there's not really a spiritual conflict. There's no angelic conflict. I'm just kind. Of, I can get by on my own. I can rely on my own resources, and that's good enough. They convince themselves that they don't need to have a mentality that is totally saturated with Bible doctrine. Well, that's, that's fanatical. Most people go to Bible class three or four times a week, listen to a tape every day. I mean, they need to get a life. Well, they're the ones who have life. But there are too many people who get distracted by the details of life, and they're, they're considered fools because they don't understand the true dynamics of reality that every believer is a target in the angelic conflict, which is what we're studying on Sunday mornings. And, and, and if they don't get the word, then they will be a casualty because they're divorced from reality, they're divorced from truth, and they lack insight, and they will constantly make bad decisions. So they'll just be little bad decisions, but those little bad decisions pile up and pile up, and they snowball, 10, 15 years down the road, their life is a wreck. Their marriage is a wreck. They don't understand which way to go because they made so many little bad decisions for 20 or 30 years, and the recovery process will take them the rest of their life. There is recovery. But it's so sad because if they had just gotten their priorities right when they were 18 or 19 or 12 or 13, rather than wait until they were 45 or 50 or 55, it would have made such a difference in their life. Parallel to that, you have the word for scorners, latzon, 
which means to scorn, to ridicule, to show contempt or disdain. To not make the word of God your priority is to say it's not really all that important. That is considered by God contemptuous. That's why I say positive volition is gung-ho volition. Anything less is really negative volition. It's not positive. It's playing games with God. It's great. I have friends. You have friends. They're believers. They understand the gospel. They recognize that uh, they need to take care of their spiritual life. Maybe they even go so far as to confess their sins once a month. But they only show up at Bible class when there's a problem in their life. They only start listening to a tape when things get a little bit rugged. If then... But they're not evolutionists. They don't hate Christ. They haven't gone into a cult. So we say maybe they're positive because they're not antagonistic. But what God is saying is don't, don't, confu- don't, uh, uh, don't confuse the issue here. If they're not gung-ho, if they're not taking in wisdom, then they are showing contempt because they've rejected the framework of reality that my word describes. We come to uh, point six, was God has made doctrine available to all. He takes the initiative to offer it to all. Point seven is the consequences of rejection of wisdom, which are not paying attention, neglect, verses uh, 24 and 25, because I have called you and you refused. I've stretched out my hand and no one regarded, or uh, the New American Standard translates it, no one paid attention. Now, someone who's not paying attention to the word is negative. That's the point I'm making. Um, Because you disdained all my counsel, New American Standard translates it, neglected all of my counsel. Negative volition is the neglect of God's word. It's not necessarily hostility and rejection. It's just the neglect of wisdom. Wisdom's available, but tomorrow. What's the result? Wisdom says, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your terror comes. This is point seven. The consequences of rejection of wisdom is that wisdom won't be available when the crisis hits. And wisdom is pictured as just mocking, laughing uh, derisively of people. You had your opportunity. Now I'm just going to sit back and laugh at you while you reap the consequences of your bad decisions. Point number eight. When the time comes, it's too late. The storm has broken. Your life's a wreck. Basic principle is it's too late to try to shore things up now because everything has already fallen apart. Verse 27. When your terror comes like a storm... And your destruction comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me. How many people suddenly start calling out to God to help them, to save them, to rescue them? They've had the Word of God available for them for years. And now they're reaping their consequences, and they want God to help them. And when God doesn't magically remove everything, they start blaming God for all their problems. The problem is they never would have gotten there in the first place if they hadn't prepared themselves. And now they're just reaping what they're sowing. That's what Galatians is talking about. 
reaping what we're sowing, reaping the consequences of years of bad decisions. And wisdom says, Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. This isn't God talking. This is wisdom talking. Doctrine says they're going to call for me. They're going to try to apply doctrine, but there's no doctrine there. I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to answer. I'm not available to them because they never learned it to begin with. They will seek me diligently, but you can't start cramming for the final five minutes before the final when you never attended class the whole semester. It's too late. So that leads to point nine, failure to learn doctrine. Failure to learn doctrine and fortify the soul before the crisis leads to self-destruction. This is verses 29, 30, and down to 32. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Notice it's their volition. The issue is, what's your priority? Is the word of God so real to you that you are going to arrange your schedule in such a way that you get doctrine every single day? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way, and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. See, when you are just complacent towards doctrine, you're a fool. You're contemptuous of the Word of God. That's negative volition. Just not taking advantage of it is just as negative as any militant atheist. And then we have our closing promise in verse 33. But whoever listens to me, says doctrine, whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. When the storm comes, Matthew chapter uh, 7, Jesus talks about you have two people. One builds his house on a foundation of stone. One builds a house on shifting sand. When the storm comes, which one survives? The one built on solid rock. And that's the same principle that we have here in Proverbs chapter 1. Now, the application I'm making to this is preparation for time of death. Preparation for the death. This is the preparation of your soul for the death of anyone you love. You can apply it to the loss of anything because grief and mourning don't apply just to death. They can apply to the loss of a job, loss of income, loss of a dream. We're going to go through some things in Scripture related to mourning. People in Scripture, including our Lord, grieve over many things. The Lord grieved over the negative volition of the Jews. There are many things that we can legitimately grieve over and have sorrow over. What fortifies our soul, though, even in those times of grief, is that we prepare ourselves ahead of time with the proper mental attitude uh, from the Word of God. And if you don't do it ahead of time, then it's too late once the crisis comes. Okay, let's go to the second thing I want to talk about tonight, and that's the doctrine of dying grace. Doctrine of dying grace. Dying grace... First point, doctrine of dying grace is but one category of grace for the believer. We have saving grace. You have uh, sustaining grace in the believer's life. 
You have common grace where God gives blessing to both believer and unbeliever before, uh, whether they're saved or not. And dying grace is a category of grace for the believer, and it's a special uh, experience of peace, tranquility, and happiness in the soul at the time of death. And I stress that because that doesn't mean that if you're a believer and you're a mature believer that there won't be physical suffering prior to death. This is talking about your attitude, the attitude of the soul, that the believer will have a special experience of peace, tranquility, and contentment and happiness at the time of death. Why? Second point, because dying grace is a byproduct of the faith rest drill. As you have practiced the faith rest drill over the years, your soul is fortified with doctrine. And because of that, you enter that period of death fully confident that you're just stepping across the threshold from this life into heaven, and there's no turmoil in the soul. As you have prepared your soul through the practice of the faith rest drill over the years, then at the time of approaching death, you can be relaxed. You can be calm. There's, there's uh, uh, minimal anxiety. There may be times when you start to, well, I'm not sure what's going to happen and everything, but, but uh, overall you're calm, you're content because your focus is on the truth of God's Word. Third point, dying grace does not guarantee a time of death free from pain, It doesn't uh, guarantee that you'll be free from uh, death being a lengthy process or free from heartache. You can go through a lot of... There's a lot of ways God teaches us and teaches those around us. If you go through a lengthy period where you're you're ill, others have to take care of you, that, that gives others the opportunity to serve you. There's a lot of ways that God may take us through a lengthy period of dying because what he's teaching others and allowing others to do for us, just to serve us, to help, just to develop their own capacity for love and and service. So dying grace doesn't guarantee freedom from external pain. It guarantees that the believer who has been prepared through doctrine can relax and have tranquility at the time of death. We see this in the 23rd Psalm. It opens up, it's a psalm of David, and the Lord, and David states the underlying principle for the psalm in the first verse. He says, Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. He's the one who takes care of me. Everything in this psalm flows out of an understanding that God is his sufficient caretaker. God takes care of me. That's what he's saying in that first line. God takes care of me like a shepherd. And no one could be a better shepherd than God because of omniscience. He knows exactly how to take care of me. And so because he is omniscient and omnipotent, no one could take care of me better. Therefore, I don't have any wants. I lack nothing, one translation says. I have no wants whatsoever. There's nothing missing. Now, I may think, some of us may think, well, maybe I could have this or maybe I could have that. But what the psalmist recognizes is God knows exactly what I need, and he provides it. Let's expand on it, he says in verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, what does that mean? When we were in Israel, I didn't put a picture of this, but especially in the area south of Bethlehem, 
When you get down into the hills of Judea, it's very dry, and there are a lot of wadis. Now, a wadi is what those of us in Texas would call a dry creek bed. It's a, it's where there's an intermittent stream, and if it starts raining very hard, and it can rain very hard a number of miles away, you may not even see the rain where you are, and all of a sudden there'd be a flash flood, and before you know it, as you're taking your sheep across the wadi, a flash flood comes, and you're dead. It is a, a wadi is a very dangerous place. There are all kinds of caves and crevices where predators, mountain lions, uh, bears can hide out, wolves can hide out to uh, take the sheep. So it is an area that is fraught with danger where death it can, is a very real possibility at any moment. When, uh, when we were in, in Israel last month, we went down to Qumran. There's a huge gorge just across the, the area there as you stand at the visitor center there at, at Qumran. You, you look across, there's, there's all these gullies that have been cut down through, by erosion. You see the very couple of the caves where scrolls were found. And then you look up on the ridge to the kind of the southeast of the visitor center, and there's this deep cut in, in the uh, side of what we would call a canyon wall or the ridge, line, ridge wall. And they told us that just a month before our visit, there was a group of a couple of adult leaders and some teenagers who were going rock climbing up there, and they were all roped up, and they were climbing up the side of this of this gorge. And there was a half an inch of rain about 30 miles to the uh, to the west toward Jerusalem. It didn't rain there. I mean, Qumran's in the desert. It doesn't get very much rain, just as dry as a bone. But that half inch of rain gathered its strength as those waters came down the gullies. And by the time it hit that gorge, it was a roaring flash flood. And they tried to yell and scream when they heard the weather report to these climbers to, to get to high ground. And they finally made it, you know, made it known and they started to scramble, but it was too late. And those waters hit and four of the uh, teenagers lost their lives. And that's just to illustrate the, the risk factor in these wadis. Well, that's what David is talking about when he talks about the valley of the shadow of death. These were those valleys that he would have to take the sheep through as he would move from one area to another. And every time you go through one of these wadis, you, it's very dangerous. You never know what could happen. Is there a predator waiting? Could a flash flood hit? Uh, so what he is saying here is, though I, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, whenever I go through any situation where danger is prevalent, whenever there's any possibility of a crisis, I don't fear any evil. It doesn't matter. He's not necessarily talking about specifically death, but death is the most extreme danger that we think of, whether it's a small crisis or a major crisis. Whenever I put myself in a position where my safety is threatened and I could potentially even lose my life, I'm relaxed. I fear no evil. Why? That's the explanation. For you are with me, the omnipresence of God for his children. He is always with us to support us. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He picks up on 
the shepherd imagery of verse 1, that like a shepherd has a rod and a staff. The rod is used to poke the sheep to move them along. Staff has a crook on the end to grab them, to pull them out of, out of danger, to pull them out of trees, to uh, <clears throat> help move them along. They comfort me. These, the rod and the staff often would relate to us even in terms of discipline. But what he is saying is God always takes care of us and his ongoing providential acts in our life continually comfort us. So the principle from Psalm 23 is simply that God is watching over us and because he is our shepherd, we shouldn't fear any evil. We can even go into death completely relaxed. David expresses it this way in Philippians 1.21, For me... To live is Christ. When Christ is my priority and I'm living to serve him, then death is just simply a transition to gain. I just move to a higher level of service. So it is nothing to be feared. Point number four, the believer knows with certainty the realities of death because God has informed us what's going to happen at the time of death. Because we have knowledge, we can relax. We know that physical death is not the cessation of existence. We know that physical death is merely crossing from one room into another, from the room of this dimension into the room of God's heavenly throne. We know that physical death is a transference. To be absent from the body is to be face-to-face with the Lord. Physical death is just a removal from this physical body to a new body. For all but the rapture generation, it's a transition body. But for the believer at the rapture, it will be the new resurrection body. Luke 16, 19 to 31, which is the story about Lazarus and the rich man, tells us and informs us clearly that there's a transition body. It's a picture of Lazarus dying, the rich man dies. <clears throat> Lazarus goes to... Abraham's bosom, the rich man goes to torment, and when they describe things, they use these physical tor- terms. The, the rich man who is in torment says, just let him dip his finger into the water that he can put a drop on my tongue so that I can be cool. See, very physical terms. So apparently there is a transition body that, that we have prior to being, uh, uh, having our resurrection body. And so, because of that, physical death is to be expected and anticipated. We can look forward to it as, as an advancement from where we are. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 1 through 7. This is a tremendous passage, a great passage to memorize, these, these seven verses in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, For we know that if our earthly house, that is, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, talking about our resurrection body. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. See, when our focus is on that eternal destiny, there's always part of us that's longing to just get out of this veil of tears, to get out of this cosmic system, to just drop all this and get into the presence of our Father. For this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven, if indeed having been clothed we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. 
Now he has prepared us, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. See that knowing there is a participle, it should be translated as a causal participle. We are always confident because we know something. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Parenthesis, for we walk by faith and not by sight right now. But, the verse goes on to say, we walk by faith and not by sight. But in verse 8 goes on to say that we will be absent. To be absent from the body is to be uh, face-to-face with the Lord. Then we go on to understand what physical death is because of its description in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 50 and following. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortality must put on immortality. See, we know that we have to go through this transition. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortality is put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Because we know these truths, we can relax at any time. Death can come at any time, and we can be relaxed. Third point, or fifth point, rather. Fifth point, God determines the time, the manner, and place of our death. Whenever it happens, whoever it may be, we know that God in eternity past determined that time, the manner, and the place of death. It just wasn't accidental. It may surprise us. It may shock us. It may stun us. It may be the last thing in the world we wanted to happen. It may blow all of our plans. But this is exactly what God intended. And see, that's what happens. We get so self-focused on our plans and what we wanted to happen and, and, and what we wanted our children to be and all the potential that they had. And that's the hardest thing for parents is, but God, if you have a child that dies when he's 10 or when they're 12 or when they're 15, God never intended them to be any there. God gave that child to you for 10 years. That was it. You thought it was longer. That was a mistake. God said, I'm only giving you this child for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. You make the mistake of thinking you have a right to that child for 50 years or 75 years or or you have a right to die before them. But that's because your head's not on straight. It's not oriented to truth. So God determines the time, the manner, and place of our death. Matthew 6, 25 through 27. Therefore I say to you, Jesus says, don't worry about your life how long it's going to be or how short it's going to be or what you're going to die from. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink. Don't worry about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. That's the principle of the Lord is my shepherd. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature or one second to his life, we might add. So point number six is that God cares for us at the time of death. Psalm 116, 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. 
God is intimately involved with the death of every single believer. He sends his angels to transport us to heaven. It's not just, it's, it, when, when you die, it's not going to be, well, I don't know where to go or what's, what to do. I might get lost. No. <laughs> you don't have any fear there. And then finally, seventh point, I think, God, uh, death is a time for us to glorify God and how we face death without fear. And we can be a witness to those around us as to the grace of God and salvation. Romans 14.8 says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, we, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We can just relax. It's easy for us to relax. Well, what I've noticed is that it's really hard when it's happening to somebody else. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I've generally noticed that, that when somebody gets cancer or somebody has something happen to them, it's easier for them to handle than if it happens to their spouse or to their child or to their parent. Then they start getting all upset. But if it happens to you, then you handle it okay. But if that's going to happen to my kid, well, now I'm going to get upset about it. If it happens to someone we love, we, we tend to get more and more defensive. You really see that with pastors. Every time somebody says something about a pastor's developed thick skins early on, Every time somebody says something critical about a pastor, we just blow it off. But it goes to, it's like a poisoned arrow to the heart of a pastor's wife. And there are more pastor's wives who bail out on ministry as a result of that because they just, they, they can't stand to see their husband getting shot at. But these guys stand there and they get shot at all the time. You know, God takes care of that. So we always have that problem of taking somebody else's pain. That's just part of arrogance, hypersensitivity. Next time we'll come back, we'll look at the doctrine of grief and mourning. Very important to understand this concept of grief and mourning and what the Scriptures teach about it. Father, we thank you for this time to reflect upon death, preparation for death, preparation of our own souls, our thinking, our understanding of the truth of your word, knowing that you are our shepherd and that when we take in your word, when we make it a priority that fortifies, strengthens our souls, prepares us for times of danger, times of crisis, times of storms, and when those storms break, it's too late. Father, we pray that we might remain faithful and that we might remain positive to your word and that as we think about these things, that you would, through the Holy Spirit, strengthen our souls and prepare us for those struggles, those crises, those storms that will come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.